Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. The global death toll from coronavirus stands at now more than 93,000 at this hour. The lives lost in the United States nearing 16,000, 15,938 to be exact. Again, the U.S., with less than 5% of the world's population, has approximately 17% of the reported coronavirus deaths, according to official numbers. You can see on your screen the huge surge in deaths in the United States. This time last week, the death toll was at about 5,600. Now it's just under three times that horrific figure from a week ago. Yesterday, this nation saw its deadliest day yet again from coronavirus. Nearly 2,000 lives in the U.S. lost in just one 24-hour period. Almost half of those were in the state of New York, where Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, warned warned today Do not underestimate this virus. The governor ending his press conference on this note. How confident am I of federal uh, responsibility and action? Not that confident. Not that confident, the governor says. As we near this Sunday, Easter Sunday, which is now projected to be the peak of the deadly deaths from daily deaths from coronavirus here in the U.S. with 60,000 total deaths projected by the end of August. Right now, there are more than 450,000 people infected in the United States, 1.5 million cases reported globally. As CNN's Erica Hill reports for us now, despite the revised model projections, deaths across the country are currently rising daily. Empty streets, shuttered businesses, lives on hold. Signs of a long road ahead. The flattening of the curve last night happened because of what we did yesterday. If we stop acting the way we're acting, you will see those numbers go up. California's early efforts gaining praise for slowing the spread, as one northern county says sports are likely on hold through Thanksgiving. In Chicago, more than 400 cases are linked to the Cook County Jail, making it one of the country's largest sources of infection. As the city opens up a 66,000-square-foot refrigerated warehouse to ease overcrowding at morgues. Positive cases now confirmed aboard three aircraft carriers, and the National Guard deployed to two New Jersey veterans' homes with dozens of positive cases and at least 12 deaths. Meantime, the city of Philadelphia pushing back on claims it's a potential new hotspot. We're not orbits by any means, but I'm hopeful that the social distancing steps we put in place a few weeks ago are showing some signs of working. New Jersey tightening statewide measures, face coverings for all customers and employees at essential businesses like grocery stores and pharmacies, strict limits on capacity and gatherings. Nevada limiting the size of religious gatherings as Louisiana doubles down. There was no Easter exemption from the stay-at-home order. There was no Easter exemption from the 10-person limit. 
The Kansas governor tried to do the same by executive order, only to be overruled by the state's legislative coordinating council, which claimed it went too far by, quote, singling out one entity and limiting the free exercise of religion. We're calling on every American in every state, um, first to listen to your state and local authorities, but right after that, um, to avoid gatherings of more than 10 people and know that in so doing, we'll, we'll hasten the day. We'll hasten the day that we put the coronavirus in the past and, um, and we, uh, we reopen our country. The White House task force already working on a plan for that reopening, possibly in a matter of weeks, this as experts and those on the front lines sure urge caution. I'm concerned that we're setting dates and not listening to the virus. The virus is going to tell us when it's safe to open up again. Everyone has to stay home and treat themselves like they are positive for COVID-19. Jake, 799 people died as a result of coronavirus in New York State on Wednesday. That is the third day in a row that the state has set a somber new record for the highest single day death toll. And the governor also today saying he never would have imagined that he needed to bring in extra funeral directors to help with those who have passed. But that, Jake, is what he's needing to do now. All right, Erica Hill in New York. Thank you. Stay safe. Joining me now, CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, Sanjay, so data is showing the rate of new cases falling. So it's not picking up. Uh, but the number of new deaths, that number is increasing. And this is all coming as Johns Hopkins revised their analysis, saying that the U.S. outbreak is trending back up. Yesterday they said it was heading down, but now it's back up. How do we make sense of all, all this information, all this data? Well, well, the trending up, Jake, as you know, is sort of based on a five-day rolling average. And, Jake, I always hate talking about this in such clinical terms because we are talking about, you know, real human lives here. But it is a five-day rolling average. So it's gonna, that's going to move around a little bit. If confirmed infections are falling, even as the death rate is tragically going up, uh, th- those two things could be uh, actually happening at the same time because when death rate's falling, it takes some, I'm sorry, when people are getting confirmed, it takes some time before they would go to the hospital and then some time more after they might die. So we're seeing a lag time. So the, the, the cases falling now should mean death rates going down in about two or three weeks as long as things stay the way that they are, Jake. And, and make, uh, help us make sense of this. The U.S. now has about the same number of confirmed cases uh, as do Spain, Italy and France combined. Uh, help us understand that. Well, and, and keep in mind, you know, we're, we're about um, 325 million. If you combine the population of all three of those countries, it's about 175 million. So we are still bigger population-wise. Right. Some of this has to do with more testing, Jake, but it's not the entire picture. I mean, you know, Italy still, uh, you know, tests more per capita. And that's significant because it's a more significant sample size. That's what scientists are trying to determine. What is the sample size here and how significant is that sample size? If you're testing more per capita, as Italy has, then that's significant. So we're testing a lot, but still not more per capita than places like Italy. Jake, I think, you know, what it has to do with a bit in terms of why there's more cases here is that take Italy. I mean, they've had a a tough road, obviously everyone knows, but they also essentially locked down the country on March 9th. First, they sort of uh, created these red zones in northern Italy, but then went into full lockdown, you know, pretty quickly. And that helps. I mean, we we started doing, recommending that about a week later, Jake. So we'll see if these numbers continue the way they are, but that could partially explain it. 
Well, you, you talked about this on a per, per capita basis, which, which is helpful to understand. But I have to ask you, the U.S. is about four and a quarter percent of the of the world population, mm-hmm. uh, the, what we have. And yet we have disproportionately high percentages when it comes to coronavirus cases and coronavirus deaths. Why? I mean, I, I, I get that people are skeptical of some of the numbers we're hearing from uh, China or Iran or Russia, and maybe there's a lot more going on there that we don't know about. But still, we have more coronavirus here than, than other countries. Well, you know, I, I think that we acted late, Jake. I mean, you know, and this is, uh, there's going to be a plenty of time to sort of do the retrospective on this, but I think we did not test adequately. And as a result, in communities all across the country, Jake, when we were hearing, you know, maybe there's 50 or 60 cases in the country, for that period of time, the virus was circulating robustly in these communities, and many people were getting infected. Problem is it takes three weeks between the time of exposure and the time that someone might die from this. Uh, So, you know, we're now still seeing the ramifications of that, Jake, just because, you know, the per capita really does matter here because we are doing a lot of tests here, but they're not uniformly distributed. And the bulk of this testing has come about recently. You know, we, we talk about the number of total tests, whatever, close to 2 million, I believe now, it changes every day. But that was, bulk of that just happened over the last couple of weeks. You wanted that to have happened early and uniformly, and we didn't have that. Dr. Fauci, who's helping to lead the, the pandemic response, said that normal summer vacations could possibly be on the table uh, for those who can afford it. Um, for those of us who have young kids at home, who are not in school, that sounds fantastic, uh, potentially, but give us a reality check on that. You know, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm a little surprised that, that he said it, uh, only because, as you know, Jake, he's going to sort of be held to that now. And I think this is still very much a moving target. And I take no joy in, in saying that I'm not that confident yet that people should be looking forward to summer vacations in June. I don't know, or, or even July. I'm not sure that we'll be there yet. I think we're going to be in a, a much better place, probably. Here's the problem. I think when we hear stuff like that, for most people, they hear it and they think, that's good, which it is. We can start relaxing a bit. If you start relaxing a bit this weekend, which is a holiday weekend, I realize, for a lot of people across the country, the impact of that relaxation will be felt when? end of April, beginning of May, three, four weeks from now, perhaps. And the numbers will do what? They'll go up at that point, which will make us feel like we're going back to square one. So perhaps, you know, I'd like to obviously uh, believe uh, Dr. Fauci and uh, would look forward to that for America to be able to take summer vacations if they can. But I'm not sure that I I would be comfortable saying that yet. I'm a little surprised he he did, but I I know he's he's looking at lots of different factors to, to take into account. A lot of things we hear from our leaders who want to encourage us to get through this, of course, uh, in a lot of respects, is, uh, is aspirational or hopeful. Yeah. Um, we heard from President Trump um, a, a theory uh, that he, he, he repeated uh, that had been posited by, by experts that perhaps the virus would subside when the warmer weather came along, April. Now, officially, we have news from the National Academy of Science, Sciences that, no, that's not going to happen. There's no evidence that it subsides in warmer weather. Yeah, that was uh, something that we heard a lot, that this would have a a true sort of seasonal component to it. And uh, so I think what we can say is that the higher temperatures, the higher humidity may have an impact on the virus. But there's two bits of information that have sort of now come out. One is that in China, despite having higher temperatures and higher humidity, 
you still had exponential growth. And I think that was a big factor that the National Academy of Science took into account when, when writing this letter. The other thing is that, uh, you know, we don't have immunity to this virus. If, if there's no immunity sort of globally or in large populations, then the virus is still out there. Even if it's circulating less, less uh, robustly, it's still out there and circulating in a population of people who are not immunized. That's another thing uh, that the Academy took into account. So putting those two things together, they said it doesn't look likely that this is going to, to decrease much uh, with the warmer weather. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, always great, great to see you. I'll see you tomorrow morning. You and you can see uh, Sanjay tonight co-hosting CNN's Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears, along with Anderson Cooper, the special guest this evening, NBA great Magic Johnson. That's at 8 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Coming up next, I'm going to speak with the mayor of an emerging hotspot in the United States where she predicts one in seven residents might get coronavirus. Plus, President Trump expected to announce another task force, its focus and potential members ahead. Stay with us. Baltimore, Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. could be the new hotspots in the United States for coronavirus, according to the White House task force. In the nation's capital, more than 1,500 people have tested positive for coronavirus and 32 have died because of it. Joining us now, Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser. Mayor Bowser, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Let me just ask you if Washingtonians are taking the appropriate measures, uh, staying at home, social and physical distancing. Why do you think the numbers of cases are going up? Um, well, we know that we've been in the posture of strict social distancing. We're coming up on a, on a month this coming Monday. And Washingtonians are doing uh, what we've asked. They're staying home. They're only going out for essential services. Uh, and we are very hopeful uh, that we are dampening the impact that this infection will have on our city. Uh, but we know uh, and we, we've seen in other places around our country uh, that the virus uh, can spread and has spread and can cause major surges in our hospital capacity. And that's exactly what we're planning for. Are Washingtonians supposed to be wearing masks when we go outside? Because my wife and I do when we walk our dogs. And I have to say, the mask thing doesn't seem to be uh, sweeping the city. Well, we, I have um, issued a mayor's order today, Jake, around um, wearing masks when you're going into essential businesses, especially our grocery stores. Uh, we know our grocery workers are on the front lines, and we're asking first and foremost that all Washingtonians stay at home and only go out for essential work, exercise, food, um, well-planned grocery trips, uh, and medicine, because we know wearing masks is not a replacement for limiting uh, our travel. So I want to remind everyone of that. Uh, and we also want people to use uh, homemade masks or scars or other face coverings so that the, the N95 masks that our medical workers need are being reserved for them. How are you going to enforce the, the requirement that people who go into grocery stores wear masks? And why are grocery store employees not being asked to wear masks? Well, we are asking every person uh, to accept their individual responsibility for sure. Uh, there's no way that we're going to be able to send the, the police to every location and watch every person who enters a grocery store. We're putting the requirement on our business owners 
And our grocers have stepped up to the plate to stay open, um, to operate their businesses safely. Uh, and we're asking them to have an added element of advising their patrons of how they should uh, enter their stores and how they should um, even go around their stores, going down one ways aisles, maintaining six feet social distancing, bagging their own groceries. And so those are all of the things that we're asking of our residents uh, as well as our business owners. And what and what about people who work at grocery stores? How come they're not being asked? And, and, and I agree with you. They're, no, we they're heroes. I mean, the people who let, the people let, who are let doing me this. Be clear. Uh, let me be clear. Yeah. We certainly have yeah. asked all of the grocers to maintain that supply uh, for their workers. Uh, what we are unable to do is to say from the city's uh, very limited supply that we are maintaining for our first responders, medical personnel, and hospital workers. Um, we are gathering and procuring locally um, those very needed supplies, and we want all of the grocers to do the same. What's really, really important here, Jake, is that we maintain uh, our food supply. So from grocers to takeout restaurants to all of our food markets, we're asking them to modify their operations, but to continue the flow of food uh, in our city. Uh, we, had, we also announced today some additional measures that were taken locally uh, to keep food moving uh, in our vulnerable communities, among people who have been medically quarantined and among people who are unable to get out uh, and safely uh, to go get groceries and essential items. So there's a lot that we must do locally as this uh, response to this um, pandemic continues to make sure that the flow of food is safe, both for workers and for our residents. So California uh, was the first state to implement a, uh, implement a statewide stay-at-home order. San Francisco was the first city to do so. There is evidence uh, that suggests that this early intervention uh, by the mayor of San Francisco, by the governor of California, and by the residents of that state and that city uh, helped keep a coronavirus surge at bay. They've seen a 1.9% drop uh, of people going to the intensive care unit. Um, you issued a stay-at-home order for Washington, D.C. on March 30th. The first known case in the district uh, was 23 days before that, March 7th. Do you have any concerns that maybe the Washington, D.C. stay-at-home order came too late? Oh, what we've done to keep people at home actually started on March the 13th. On March the 13th, we closed our public schools. Uh, we modified our government operations, keeping more than 50% of our workers at home. Uh, the following week, we closed restaurants and bars uh, and uh, limited large gatherings in our city. Uh, we also closed essential businesses the week after that. So all of our stay-at-home directives began on March the 13th, and we believe that that will keep more D.C. residents safe and help us bend the curve. And lastly, uh, Mayor Bowser, and we do appreciate your time today, what is the city doing to prevent the spread of coronavirus and in institutions serving the you know, people who I, I think it's fair to say are particularly vulnerable to this virus prisoners in the D.C. jail, many of them, of course, as you know, are, are, are waiting trial, have not been found guilty of anything. Patients at St. Elizabeth's Psychiatric Hospital, what's being done to protect them? 
Oh, well, we have implemented a number of protocols across all of our vulnerable populations. Um, and next week, actually, as part of our public briefings, we put a plan to tell D.C. residents exactly what's happening at each of those but to give you an example, at our jail, um, working with our, our D.C. courts, the U.S. attorney, the Metropolitan Police Department, uh, we started early on to see if there were ways that we could direct people um, uh, out of the jail um, before any decisions were made, for example, on, on charging decisions. Um, and so those things have been pretty effective in helping us keep the jail population uh, down. Uh, even since we've been responding to this pandemic, we've seen the population in our, in our jail uh, decrease by hundreds of people, which we think is a good thing because it allows us to implement more spacing. Uh, we've also limited people coming into the jail um, from workers to vendors uh, to visitors to try to prevent the spread. But we have a very serious protocol for if we have a worker or an inmate test positive. Um, and we have uh, the luxury of having a lot of space now in our jail uh, so that we can spread people out more. But we have other vul vulnerable populations that you've mentioned um, from uh, the people that we serve at our St. Elizabeth's Hospital. And similarly, uh, we have protocols to quarantine anybody um, that is found to be positive mm -hmm. and to quarantine people that have been exposed to them. All right, Mayor Bowser, thank you so much. Stay in touch with us. Let us know if there's anything you need you're not getting that we can shine a light on. We appreciate it, and good luck. Thank you, Jake. Coming up next is CNN Investigation, and look at how the federal government left up roadblocks that prevented more coronavirus testing in the critical time early on in the pandemic. Stay with us. Shocking new details on the rollout of coronavirus testing. CNN has learned that some private labs we're eager to develop testing as early as January, anticipating the inevitable outbreak. But as CNN's Drew Griffin reports for us now, the federal government actively blocked those tests from being produced and made available to the American public. As coronavirus was silently racing around the world in late January and early February, the federal government not only failed to use the massive arsenal of hundreds of laboratories across the United States for emergency testing, it actually left roadblocks in place to prevent non-government labs from assisting. That is according to documents obtained by CNN and interviews with more than a dozen scientists and physicians involved in coronavirus testing. At the very beginning of this pandemic, it was the federal government that had the sole ability to do the testing and made it very difficult for private labs, for university labs to make their own tests based on certain regulatory hurdles. Several hospital and university-based labs have told CNN they saw the pandemic approaching, were developing their own tests as early as January to detect the virus. But the red tape with the FDA's regulatory process prevented them from moving forward, meaning labs sat idle. Rather than enlisting the tremendous strength and power of the U.S. laboratory capacity, getting everybody working on this uh, and creating tests and having widespread test availability. We had CDC trying to keep running everything by itself. The federal government was prepared to enforce the rules, sending this memo on February 6th telling state health departments to actively police against labs using their own coronavirus tests. The reasoning behind the tight regulations were good, 
assure the safety and efficacy of tests. But Dr. Glenn Morris of the University of Florida says the FDA rules were written for normal situations, not a crisis. When we suddenly hit the point where we were looking at China and seeing what was going on there, what we needed was extremely aggressive leadership. We've got to move fast because otherwise we're going to run into a problem. The problem developed as soon as the CDC rolled out its own test for verification. It didn't work. And weeks were lost as the CDC scrambled to make a new test. So we really were in in a uh, basically on a pause for a few weeks within the public health system. And meanwhile, the academic laboratories who had developed their own tests also were not able to test because the regulations didn't allow it at that time. What's even worse, in 2018, after the Zika outbreak, the CDC came up with a plan to avoid the very testing disaster that's happening. CNN obtained a copy of this memorandum of understanding between the commercial and public labs and the CDC that was supposed to increase national laboratory testing in an emergency by engaging commercial labs early in the response. It didn't work. Dr. Karen Call, who runs the laboratory services for North Shore Research Institute in Evanston, Illinois, was one of the labs pushing to launch its own test and was stopped by overbearing red tape. It seems like this has been a a bit of a a failure. I do think there's definitely room for improvement. What's happened is we've had a number of laboratories and a number of manufacturers and, and groups that are not all working together in a coordinated fashion. In a statement to CNN, the FDA insists there was nothing wrong in its process and instead blames individual lab delays where labs did not understand the FDA process and mistakenly believed there was more work involved. Despite that, the FDA did publish new guidelines on February 29th, allowing labs to begin testing. Experts tell CNN it was just too late. And Jake, just this afternoon, the CDC gave us a written statement saying they did keep the lab community informed, but did not answer our question. If you did know this was happening, why didn't you allow these big labs to get testing way sooner, like January? Jake? Hmm. Andrew, I want to ask you, we just learned today that the Trump administration is pulling back on federal support for the testing sites by the end of this week. um, Is that going to have a a negative impact on testing or do states and cities have this and and they're dealing with it fine? You know, it's a mixed bag here in Georgia. The state says it can handle this. Uh, uh, Other states may not be able to. It all comes down to the supply chain and whether the states have the supplies and the manpower to conduct these tests And, you know, that's been a mixed bag, Jake. Uh, The other thing is to test our way out of this problem, we're going to have to test a whole lot more people than we have been testing. And now having that all being relied upon local and state governments, that could be a heavy lift for some of these state governments. Yeah. How do we get out of this without some sort of nationwide testing? Health officials say it has to happen. Drew Griffin, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, Coming up next, it's equivalent to the entire population of North Carolina and Tennessee combined. 17 million Americans filing for unemployment for the first time in just the last three weeks. What economists are predicting next. Welcome back. President Trump is preparing to announce a second coronavirus task force focused solely on reopening the U.S. economy. Multiple sources tell CNN that the White House is considering a group of administration officials, along with business leaders and even some major sports teams, to work on this effort. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, they are keeping a very close eye on the calendar. 
Today, President Trump is preparing to announce a second coronavirus task force aimed at reopening the U.S. economy. This one will likely include a mix of government aides like Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, in addition to economic experts from the private sector. Their goal will be restarting the nation's economy, and Mnuchin hopes it can happen by May. I think as, as soon as the president feels comfortable with the medical issues, we are making everything necessary that American companies and American workers can be open for business. After he was forced to abandon his goal of reopening the country by Easter, Trump now says he's not putting a deadline on it. We're doing well in terms of the numbers. I can't tell you in terms of the date. The nation's top infectious disease expert sounded optimistic today that life could somewhat return to normal this summer if Americans continue to follow the guidelines. But hopefully, and hopefully, by the time we get to the summer, we will have taken many steps in that direction. As Trump focuses on the economy, his aides are concentrating on protecting the chain of command. For days, the president has downplayed questions about whether he should distance himself from the vice president. Mike had his test a couple of days ago. I had my test a couple of days ago. Officials say they don't need to because both have been tested and everyone who meets with them is also being tested. The administration is also weighing testing everyone who works on the White House complex. I don't see it for myself. I just, I just don't. The president has said he won't follow CDC guidance that Americans should cover their face while in public. But some of his top aides are taking their advice. The deputy national security advisor has been wearing a mask for weeks now. And Attorney General Bill Barr said he also wears one when he's at the Justice Department. I actually wear a mask. I, I wear a mask and my security detail wear a mask when we go in every morning and we go home. First Lady Melania Trump is also breaking with her husband and tweeted this photo of herself wearing a mask to remind Americans of the CDC guidance. And Jake, we've now learned that the White House is going to test all of the reporters for coronavirus today, the ones who are going to attend that briefing with the president and the vice president and other officials after a member of the White House press corps started showing symptoms of coronavirus. So it's not clear whether or not they are positive or negative for it. And it's also not clear if this is going to be a daily practice. As we did note, they are considering testing everyone who comes onto the White House grounds for coronavirus as well. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. Uh, more staggering unemployment numbers today. The Labor Department says that 6.6 million Americans filed for unemployment for the first time last week. Add that to the previous three weeks. That is 16.8 million Americans now out of a job, about 11 percent of America's workforce. And of course, those numbers reflect just a small fraction of the economic pain being felt out there. Let's bring in CNN business anger, Julia Chatterley. And Julia, today, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said that the U.S. is losing jobs with, quote, alarming speed. But he also said that the spike in jobless claims will be temporary. The Trump administration keeps hyping a, a robust restart. Is that possible, a robust restart? I want to say anything is possible. You know, I tackled Jason Furman, who was President Obama's economic advisor on this exact point today. And he said, look, the good news is half of these people claiming and asking for help here could just be furloughed workers. They could be added back really quickly. He said, but even with that, it could still take us five years to get back to where we started in terms of the labor market. The bottom line here is, and Jay Powell said this, the best way to ensure a robust recovery is a national plan for reopening the economy and avoiding a false start here, a surgence and a re-rise in some of the, uh, the cases. 
that we've seen. It's a challenge. Right before the Fed chair made his comments, the Federal Reserve released its own kind of new stimulus, $2.3 trillion in various programs to try to help the economy, plus $600 billion in loans for small businesses. Explain what the Fed did here, if you could. This was the Fed opening up the bank vault and saying, if you want to borrow money, you get it. It was lending to states. It was lending to municipalities, to small businesses too. Four-year loans, one year, you don't have to pay any money. But Jay Powell also said, look, this is lending, it's not spending. That's down to governments. And the beauty of the loans to small businesses was the bulk of them would be forgiven if they're spent on payrolls. This is just buying Congress time to come up with more money, Jake. And speaking of Congress and small businesses today, uh, Senate Democrats blocked uh, efforts by Senate Republicans to add another $250 billion to the small business loan program, which you and I have discussed several times. It's, it's overwhelmed but because of all the demand as well as some of the technical issues. Among other objections, Senate Democrats say they want uh, the bill, the legislation, to guarantee uh, access to these smaller, underserved companies. Uh, what's your take on all this? Do you worry that the politics are going to get in the way of the bigger goal? Are the Democrats right here? Are the Republicans right? What do you think? I think this is more a case of context and process and timing here. I think the Republicans wanted three weeks to see how the money was working. The Democrats are saying, fill the gaps now. Both sides agree, states, healthcare, individuals need more money. It's just when they come up with the goods. This lending program was the only thing that had bipartisan support initially, and they need to find that again, Jake. All right, Julia Chatterley, CNN Business Anchor, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. See you tomorrow. Coming up, the global devastation of coronavirus. One country now investigating images depicting dead bodies left on the side of the street. We're going to go to our reporters who are all around the world. That's next. Stay with us. Two nurses in Suffolk County, New York, have died from coronavirus, and nearly 900 employees at a Michigan hospital system have been infected by COVID-19. Doctors and nurses risking their lives to save you and me and patients, and they still do not have enough of the masks and other personal protective equipment, or PPE, needed to protect themselves from this virus. It is a national outrage. I want to bring in the dean of Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Dr. Dennis Charney, who's a psychiatrist by training, as well as an expert in depression and post-traumatic stress. Uh, Dr. Charney, one doctor told NPR that going into work was like, quote, walking into Chernobyl without any gear, unquote. How serious is the emotional toll that this is taking on our doctors and nurses and healthcare workers? Uh, There's going to be a serious emotional uh, uh, toll because uh, the healthcare workers are heroes, but they're also warriors. And they're they're being exposed to the terrible disease and they're faced with death literally every day. So we're concerned that they are going to develop high levels of post-traumatic stress disorder just like veterans from Vietnam and the first responders from 9-11. And it's not just a matter of the fact that they don't even have the PPE, so they have to worry for themselves, they have to worry for the members of their family. They're also day in, day out, working double shifts, surrounded by incredibly sick people, people who are dying. uh, And, I mean, 
that is that's dark enough. I mean, with without having to then worry about their own lives. Exactly. It's it's as uh, stressful as being in combat or in terms of 9-11 being the first responders where you saw all that death uh, surrounding you. So it's uh, it's really hard and it is incumbent upon us as a health system and as uh, a government uh, to provide the kind of health care to our health care warriors to help them deal with this uh, trauma and stress. Well, I mean, from your mouth to God's ears, that we're not even providing them with the PPE they need. Um, take a listen to this one ICU nurse uh, in New York. Yeah, it does feel like a war to us. Um, I hesitated to use that analogy because war is not a joke, but it really does. The patients keep coming. There's more death. There's, there's more of that. Um, so, yeah, emotionally, it, it, there's a lot of anxiety. I assume that's you're hearing that from from other nurses, other doctors and others. We hear it every day. Um, and at the same time, it's really unbelievable. You know, here at Mount Sinai and other major uh, academic medical centers dealing with this. It's also inspiring in terms of the courage and the bravery that our nurses and our doctors are experiencing and, and reflecting at the same time, dealing with all the stress that we're talking about. You talked, you compared this to war. She, uh, the nurse we just uh, ran the clip of, she described this as a war. Why does it feel like a war to the people going through it? Because you come in every day, you know that you're going to be fighting an enemy that is very tough and invisible. There's uh, death all around you until we come up with new treatments or a vaccine. Uh, So uh, you're fighting an enemy. So it is like a war. And we have teams of very brave people fighting that war every day, day in and day out. And these medical professionals, they're also coming home to to families in many cases. We hear from so many of them about how terrified they are about giving this disease to their partners, to their children, to 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 anyone else who might live with them, their parents. How can they begin to cope with that? Yeah, that's that's another problem, because. Many times they have to stay separate, you know, from their family members so they don't affect them. So they're not getting the kind of support that they uh, really need. So it's tough. And I you know, just to emphasize again, we we need to help them. Uh, and it, it's going to be really hard when this is all over and they have the memories of this experience that stay with them perhaps for life. Well, I'm glad that you are with some of them, Dr. Dennis Charney. Stay in touch with us. Let us know how to keep shining a light on the amazing work that these men and women are doing and what, we, what more we need to do to help them and support them. Thank you so much. Thank you. In our world lead today, Italy's prime minister saying it could be, quote, the end of Europe if the European Union does not financially help the hardest hit countries. Sweden is reporting a spike in deaths in that country for a second day in a row. That nation has yet to implement any sort of nationwide lockdown. Instead, uh, the government is asking people over 70 to stay home and for people to practice social distancing. Ecuador's president is calling for an investigation now after disturbing images of bodies left on the side of the road surfaced last week. We have reporters around the world joining me now to talk about what's going on around the world. Let's begin with CNN's Bianca Nobilo in London. And Bianca, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, we're told, 
is now out of intensive care. He is. He spent 72 hours there and he has now been moved to a basic recovery ward where he is in the early stages of recovery in Downing Street are keen to emphasise that. But they say that he's in extremely good spirits. So that's good news as far as the Prime Minister's health is concerned. Now, obviously, there's been a massive emphasis on Boris Johnson's well-being for obvious reasons. He is the leader. He's the person charting the course through this outbreak for Britain. But we are seeing a devastating toll on the country at large, over 880 deaths today in the United Kingdom. And for frontline healthcare workers, you were just speaking to somebody talking about the lack of PPE and the deaths that happen as a result of that. And we've seen Dr. Abdul Mabud Chowdhury, a 50-year-old doctor, pass away after battling from coronavirus. And even more tragically, he actually wrote to the prime minister asking for more PPE for their frontline healthcare staff in the United Kingdom just two weeks ago, Jake. Well, Bianca Nabila, thank you so much. Tragic. Uh, the death toll in Spain has now surpassed 15,638 more deaths in just the past 24 hours in that country. CNN's Scott McLean joins me now live from Madrid. And Scott, a CNN analysis of the death toll in Madrid suggests that the number could be significantly higher than what's been reported in terms of actual deaths because of coronavirus. That's right. By several thousand in Madrid alone, Jake, consider that in the last half of March, In Madrid, 9,000 people died, whereas in a typical year, you'd only see about 2,000 deaths. That's a difference of 7,000 deaths. Now, about half of that can be explained by Madrid's official coronavirus death toll. The other half may well also be related to the coronavirus, but they weren't counted because those people were never tested to be sure. On top of that, Madrid's regional government says that thousands of people have died in nursing homes with coronavirus symptoms, but again, they weren't counted because they weren't tested. Now, the Spanish government says it is counting according to WHO guidelines, only deaths where people have had a positive coronavirus test, though it says it is doing its own analysis to understand the discrepancy. And one other thing to add, Jake, and that's that the Spanish parliament officially voted today to extend the stay-at-home order until April 26th. The prime minister, though, he said this country had reached the peak of the outbreak. He expects to have to extend that stay-at-home order again into May. All right, Scott, thank you so much. Japan enacted a state of emergency this week, but you might not know it when you take a look at the crowds commuting to work, almost business as usual, except if you look a little closer, you see masks. CNN's Will Ripley joins me now live from Tokyo. Will, are people in Japan not taking this state of emergency seriously enough? Am I misreading what we see there? I think the problem is, Jake, a lot of people just don't have a choice because 80 percent of Japanese companies are not able to allow their employees to work from home. That's according to government data from last year. And so for companies that tell people they have to go to work, they don't have a choice. The number of commuters is down, but it's not down even close to the 70 to 80 percent that the Japanese government says needs to be reduced in order to stop this city from having 10,000 infections in two weeks and 80,000 cases potentially in a month. And I'm talking to an epidemiologist who says nothing short of a total lockdown will accomplish that. The problem is Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is trying to balance public health with the health of the economy, seemingly ignoring the fact that the economy could be devastated if the cases do skyrocket here like we're seeing in other cities. And Tokyo's numbers in many ways are just several weeks behind cities like New York uh, and whatnot. Jake, I also spoke with a coronavirus patient who says she was tested. She's showing symptoms. She has to wait 10 days to get her results in the mail, not email, post-mail. All right. Well, Ripley in Tokyo, stay safe, my friend. Our, our coverage on CNN 
continues right now. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay inside. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.